This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. Joe Lenners, Associate Chief of Pathology and Medical Director of the Center for Integrated Diagnostics at Mass General. He oversees all aspects of the clinical laboratory service that supports personalized medicine at MGH. Dr. Lenners was the principal investigator of the first FDA instrument precision study for the first whole slide imaging scanning system. We're going to talk today about regulatory matters in digital pathology, the various regulatory bodies at play, and the alphabet soup of regulations such as CLIA, CAP, FDA, GDRP, and so forth. What is the 21st Century Cures Act, and how does it impact digital pathology? And many folks may be surprised to learn about new initiatives such as the Digital Health Center of Excellence at the FDA, which is actually designed to spur innovation. We'll learn about the Alliance for Digital Pathology, which is a regulatory science initiative designed to harmonize and standardize digital pathology processes to speed up innovation to patients. In the past, it's been tempting for many of us to think as regulation as a burden, but is this mode of thinking outdated? By proactively forming partnerships with regulatory bodies, will we actually be able to spur innovation and advance the state of the science? This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268 for more information. JAV Advisors. Dr. Joe Lenners, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, for those of us not familiar with the Digital Pathology Alliance or with you, could you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started and interested in digital pathology, and maybe tell us a little bit about the Digital Pathology Alliance and the history of that organization? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, my name is Joe Lennertz. I'm, I'm the Associate Chief of Pathology at Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm the medical director of the Center for Integrated Diagnostics, and I've been interested in digital pathology for over a decade, first as a trainee, later as a junior attending, and now more from a practical perspective of rolling out innovative technologies. Now, maybe to the second part of the question, like what's the history of the Digital Pathology Alliance? There's, you know, roughly a year and a half history of this group. It's an interest group, a collaboration, and it was started by, by three people that I met through chance and circumstance through several regulatory endeavors. So the first person who sort of started and it emerged from a project is Brandon Gallus. He's one of the mathematicians and reviewers at the FDA. He had a, a working group called the High Throughput Truthing Group. And they focused on, I think, quantification of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in breast cancer as a typical use case. And they were working on trying to establish several ground truth data sets and heard about the project that interacted with him before and that was kind of one of the starting points. The other person who started that was Esther Abels. She's kind of a, a regulatory you know, um, expert in the field of digital pathology. I had known her from an FDA trial that we did together and I think she's you know, um, a regulatory task force lead in the Digital Pathology Association, a another a big group that, that does amazing stuff. And I was personally, well, I became interested in regulatory science through the two people and 
through a trial that we did with, a, with one of the large electronic vendors that ultimately led to the first clearance of a digital slide scanner. So the, the interesting part on what came together was that, you know, it's, it's really a big field. Digital pathology has been around for a while, but there was kind of a, a missing piece here that is sort of, uh, in a way, a lack of understanding that working with regulators and basic scientists and translational scientists can truly unlock some of the potential of digital pathology. So the three of us sat down and really discussed whether there is a, a means to get there. So simply put, the Alliance wants to, to realize some of the promises of, of digital pathology using regulatory science as an approach. And we want to account for patient perspective, you know, develop methods, but basically the key premise is that there has not been a true, let's call it scientific, push towards regulatory science to unlock the full potential of, of digital pathology. I so see. that's kind of the starting point for the Digital Pathology Alliance. Yeah, I like that. So I, yeah, so you introduced this concept of what you're calling regulatory science, which I think is fascinating. And I think let's we'll, we'll jump into that a little bit later. And then what you also said is there seems to be a misunderstanding perhaps around regulation or people, I think, maybe just have a natural you know, it sounds almost like a dirty word or something that is going to be at best unpleasant, right? The idea of regulation, <laughs> who would want to submit themselves to that? But I think kind of what you're getting at is it's, we need to have a partnership and it's, you know, through developing things in a responsible way in conjunction with regulators, you know, is how we're going to actually going to get to see real innovation. Just what are some of the, the programs or initiatives you're working on at the Digital Pathology Alliance? Well, that, that's awesome. I, I like the way you put that. Like uh, another word that, that some people bring up, similar to what you outlined, is sort of multifaceted. It's, I think pathology itself is, you know, a, a lot of individual modules put together often in, in ever-changing ways to accommodate certain clinical problems. You know, you know, you may not need a biopsy, but if you need one, you take it. You may not need immunohistochemistry, but if you need it, you plug it in. It's kind of like a big Lego set where you can use individual bricks in kind of a, a very modularized fashion. So I think digital pathology as an emerging field has a benefit mainly to unlock some of the potential of some of those computational tools. But the, the regulatory clarity on that, meaning what am I allowed to do, what am I not allowed to do, at first glance to a lot of people that we, we spoke to is, well, where's that one document that just tells me how to do it, right? It's like, you know, give me, the, give me that one phone book and I will look up the name and I find the number. Where is that one document? And when you look at the, the regulatory complexity of all the systems that pathologists touch from a you know making things safe and efficient perspective and putting that let's say into documents right there are general documents there are some that are directly tied to the devices there are you know things about computer assisted technologies there's obviously a ton of software that we use and then we get into the data business and, and cybersecurity, if you wish now, when you mirror those individual pieces with, let's just call it guidance documents from the FDA, it becomes so, so intricate that certain tasks, you would combine a complete set of these documents in a completely different way. The term for that on the regulator side is the intended use. And it is very hard 
to anchor a one document to the full spectrum of digital pathology. Now I know that you know no one really likes to hear about regulations, but it's almost like that every institute, every pathology lab has their intricate ways of doing things their own way. And regulating that is highly complex. So some of the efforts that are being undertaken by the, by the Digital Pathology Alliance is first off to dissect out this complexity, to really raise awareness that if we're not doing it, if we're not providing domain input into the regulatory decision making, who will actually do it? And I would argue, you know, should be us rather than some other scientists or some other people that are not doing the day-to-day -day work in clinical practice. And at the same time, taking this gigantic, let's say, potpourri of, of elements and dissecting it out into functional uh, work groups is what we call it in the alliance, but I would call it modules probably. So there's a whole pre-analytics work group. There are work groups on slide scanning and so forth to cover really everything from specimen acquisition all the way to reporting and, and data integration. And I think these, these efforts that we do in the Alliance are in a very complicated mental framework, which is regulatory science, which is, it's almost a meta level. It's not how to scan a slide. It's not necessarily the practical aspects, but it is in the so-called pre-competitive phase. It's not marketing of products. It's how to make sure that the regulations mirror what we're thinking so that the regulations fully unlock the potential rather than hinder it. I think that's that's fantastic. I, I think it sounds like sort of a proactive approach. And, Correct. And as you said, if someone someone's going to be regulating this somewhere, somehow, so why not us? And let's get involved early so we can spur innovation and not be hindered. So very broadly, let's talk about maybe the alphabet soup that we all have heard about. But, you know, like you said, it's not that easy as, oh, just give me the one-page document that explains how everything's going to work. So we, of <laughs> yeah. course, have the FDA, which regulates or evaluates the safety of drugs and medical devices and has guidelines or rules as to how these can be sold and marketed. Then we have CLIA, providing guidance on how medicine should actually be practiced, particularly in the lab setting. And then there's other, you know, quasi-regulatory agencies or that are, you know, that are not government agencies, but certainly impact us, you know, most notably the College of American Pathologists, which really has a focus on quality and validating tests and systems. So could you just touch briefly on on these bodies and the interaction of, of those? Sure. <laughs> How many hours do I have? <laughs> <laughs> briefly. Yeah, so, so very briefly, so sort of just a primer. And I apologize for any of the, I don't know, I don't want to call it like falsifications, but I just try to simplify it. So, so first off, of course, the FDA, they regulate medical devices. And then we have to start thinking broadly about like what, why and what are the clearances to market that they administer in a way. And, you know, think broadly of, you know, three groups, A, it's drugs, B, it's anything that alters bodily functions. So it could be implants, that's like the typical example. And then three or, or, or C, ABC, if you said alphabet soup, it's like if it's intended for use in diagnostics in the broadest sense, this could be, you know, x-ray, these are imaging devices, sonography, but also anything related to diagnostics in a broad sense. So I think that group of medical devices is where we belong with digital pathology. Now, within that group of devices, in the second dimension is the classification of devices according to class one, two, three. 
So class one is usually exempt from pre-market notification, which is called 510K, another alphabet soup. But this pre-market notification class one, low risk is usually exempt because it's demonstrated to be safe and, you know, efficient. For example, the classical over-the-counter pregnancy test. Performance has been established, class one as an example. Then comes class two, a little bit higher risk. And, you know, it requires pre-market notification. And then class three, higher or highest risk requires true pre-market approval. I don't think we go can go into the details what that is, total different pathways and, and contingencies upon what is needed. But I think the key important part for digital pathology is that there is a um, if a device is a so-called pre-amendment device, which means that this whole regulation that I just outlined comes from a, an, an ultimate like law that was called the Medical Device Amendment um, from 1976 that, say, that said or stated something was existing before that and or something is substantially equivalent to that, then you don't have to do that. You don't have to go through these... Um, approvals and sort of historically the, the regulation of devices for pathology there were, were big discussions on should that be or shouldn't that be and you know in 2014 we started a trial in 2017 the first clearance via the novo classification pathway was administered in april to be specific so since april 2017 there was the first and multiple followed and i think that is that is in a way part and parcel of is a company allowed to market a device for primary diagnostic use and that device in this case would be a slide scanner and currently the systems are end-to-end -end validated meaning stick a slide in you get a diagnosis out and there's tons of instrument precision components to it but it, it is the full application of that regulatory framework so that's like the brief overview of FDA now the FDA does not regulate clinical practice. They, cl they, they classify and assess the devices and whether they're safe and efficacious. But when it comes to clinical practice, that is regulated by CLIA. So different set of regulation, in that case also an amendment, and that is living under CMS, so different branch of the executive branch of the government. And two things that I believe are, are really cri critical there are that digital pathology has been on the radar of, of, of several groups related to CLIA. And one specifically is an advisory committee called CLIAC, so Clinical Laboratory Improvement Advisory Committee. And I think, at least as far as I remember, the first real big meeting that was addressing some of those regulations for clinical practice happened in 2012 so keep in mind that's already almost a decade ago and there are certain regulations that they put out that said you know you are able to do this with with certain components but a clear guidance wasn't issued it was just well if you do it it should follow certain components but there was kind of like a back and forth because both of these groups FDA and CMS in a way or, you know, the guidance documents from the FDA and CLIA touch upon that issue. Is this a laboratory-developed test or not? Now, interestingly, which I find a very interesting historic development for digital pathology, COVID came around. And while there are so many, you know, nasty, disturbing, and really uncomfortable things about COVID-19, interestingly, one thing that happened fairly quickly, and I think it was April 2020, 
or it may have actually been March for CMS and then in April the FDA followed, there were a couple of things where some rules and regulations have been lifted to enable remote sign-out. And what I believe is has happened there is that the regulators understood that continued lockdown of remote sign-out, meaning hindering some of the digital, or I should call it telepathology elements, didn't really resonate with the national emergency, or I should say global <laughs> emergency setting. So briefly to, to end that part, currently we're still in that you know official public health emergency state. And there are definitive guidelines out there, what you have to do and what you can do, and certain enforcement discretions that enable use for example, in New York, the group around Matthew Hanna and Joe Sirentrappen at, at MSK have built and published some of their approaches. And the question is obviously how that will move forward. Now, the third part, obviously, are other accrediting agencies, such as, for example, the College of American Pathologists. Or you could also call like larger accrediting agencies like the Joint Commission. So I think CAP or you know, other of these um, accrediting agencies are translating this into more practical terms. So the, the clear regulations are abstract laws, typically federal level, but how to do this in the lab, the practically relevant components, I think that is what is owned by the College of American Pathologists. There are obviously many others. For example, I mentioned earlier the Digital Pathology Association they have a regulatory task force, they provide educational material, and there are obviously also international groups. But I think that's kind of the, the outline. Yeah, I think that's, an, that's a nice high-level outline of the various regulatory bodies and groups. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results. Now let's dive into some specifics in terms of legislation and regulation. So tell us, we've all heard about it, but and but I'm not really sure if we know what it means and particularly what it means for digital pathology. So tell us about the 21st Century Cures Act, which is a piece of legislation, I believe, from around 2016. What does that mean for us in digital pathology? So it's 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 public law, I think, since 2016, as, as you outlined. So the the idea behind the, the 21st Century Cures Act was really to, to help accelerate some of those new developments. It very well aligns with, with what I do every day in the Center for Integrated Diagnostics. We try to bring in new innovations. But how to enable that, how to incentivize that at a larger scale, in this case, you know, national level, required this bill, and it was carefully crafted over multiple years. And and the I, I want to briefly outline what that enables and how that was incentivizing things. So one element that we all heard of is the Precision Medicine Initiative. That is specifically like tied to the 21st Century Cures Act, was providing funding to the NIH to enable research and work on precision medicine. At the same time, funding was provided to the FDA to establish certain components and to the to Department of Health and Human Services and it actually amended a prior legislation, the Public Health Service Act, 
to really focus on on really enhancing our you know novel let's say understanding of diseases new trial designs one of the key elements that that i believe many many have heard of is the term real world evidence so all of these let's say to some just buzzwords but that was really firmly established in this cures act to to become available and incentivize people to really do it so for our discussion the part that that you mentioned obviously this supported research and there is a lot of research going on in digital pathology so i would say that is on the side of nih and some of the government sponsored research you know grants and and um, other initiatives let's say research laboratories research collaborations now the part that that happened almost invisibly since 2016 are some things that now surface because there were certain deadlines attached to it and one thing that I believe affects every single pathologist in the country is the term patient access. So patients want access to their data. If you would withhold the histopathology slide of a pathologist from him or herself, they would complain. And I think that's the best argument that I've heard to say, well, why do you want to withhold information from patients? Now, there's a whole debate on whether that should be immediate and whether, you know, a... a new cancer diagnosis should be available to the patient before the patient spoke to an oncologist or you know i think you heard about this discussion but i just want to want to mention that why does that matter first off patients have to be heard we made that like a big point in in the, in the digital pathology alliance and i think there are many individuals working on individual consultations with patients i believe pathology has to do that um, our results become so intricate. We have um, undergone subspecialization, so now let's make use of that. The, the, so this, this patient access will definitely affect pathology. And please note, again, from the outside, it is not as if pathologists came up with the dissemination of pathology results to patients. It is patients that ask for it through legislation over decades, and now we just have to do it. Now, whether that's the best way of accomplishing something, I'm not the one to judge. And I think it shouldn't anyone be judging that other than patients and patients have the right to know. So that is absolutely and 100% relevant. Now, I know patient advocacy groups want access to all their data. That means the one piece of missing information in the medical record is the digital slide. Pretty much everything else, the photo, of your mole somewhere or the photo of your, you know, let's say the, the images that you take with a CT and MRI scan, all of that is available, except for many, for example, cancer patients, that key diagnostic slide. The second part for the Cures Act, which I believe is <laughs> even more disruptive, although it's it may be not as, as, as well known, is um, the electronic health record interoperability, meaning that multiple systems can talk to each other. There's a system called FIRE, and there's a lot of um, programming interfaces that have to be built, and that has already become a requirement. So this is, is non-negotiable. This has already happened. So this is a, is a standard to exchange data. So FIRE is like Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource. I think it's already existing in version 4. That is established a standard to do health data exchange. 
I have not heard of any laboratory that has that. I mean, a, a true anatomic pathology laboratory that has fully implemented fire-based APIs, but this gets into the all exchangeable content is available as a resource and that should be represented with appropriate metadata and appropriate human readable data. That is already uh, a law. So it, it has been since 2016 and many people haven't heard about it and, and largely underestimate the technical complexity behind that. And then there are many other things that will affect us. I think the third that I would pick for, for digital pathology is that CMS requires an increased amount of transparency, or I should say CMS is directed to require an increased amount of transparency from their contractors in the local territories, and is in particular with respect to local coverage determination for innovative technologies. So that means basically that the 21st Century Cures Act touches upon the three key things that we need and happen in digital pathology. First, it has to become interoperable. Second, patients want access to it, so that both aligns very well. And then third, if there are innovative technologies, the 21st Century Cures Act enables that for local coverage determination, meaning it's almost built to, to unlock digital pathology. And then there are obviously about 50 other things that are not related, but yeah, I, I, I think I digress. But wow, there, there's a lot there, more than, I, more than I was even anticipating. So I think that, that's good news. I mean, I think b bad news is we don't have time to unpack all of that during this podcast, but I think <laughs> yes. we have a lot of rich material and we're, <laughs> that's going to hold us over for many episodes to come. So I think, I mean, that's a fascinating development. And I think, is it fair to say that at the core of it, you know, with the advent of digital pathology, where in the past a biopsy and the results where the pathologist renders his opinion and signs on the dotted line, you know, used to be an analog process, right? It was a piece of tissue removed and then interpreted by a person, a pathologist, which was then committed to paper. Now, is it fair to say that that process has been digitized. So it's no, it's no longer an opinion or a report, it's it's data in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. And then from that, you know, all that we were just discussing followed. Mm -hmm. Right, we, then which opens up, you know, a whole new host of, of considerations. Okay, not the least of which is, you know, just, you know, patients need access or want access to their data or are now required by law to have access. And then also, you know, depending on how you look at it as glass half empty or half half full, it offers, you know, opportunities for pathologists to expand their practice. And I guess kind of the most obvious thing you mentioned is, you know, what's going to be the role in the future of the pathologist having direct consultations with the patient to go over this data? I mean, who better suited than than the group of the physician group that actually generated these data or these conclusions and these diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So also from the 21st Century Cures Act, you said it, it opened up funding, so which is Correct. also a, a positive, I think. And so now we have new sources of funding and new groups in, in agencies. So the Digital Health Center of Excellence at the FDA, we're mm -hmm. talking about how regulation shouldn't be a hindrance, but so here, this appears to be an example of, you know, how a regulatory body such as the FDA is developing groups and working groups and now have the funding to actually help spur innovation. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Digital Health Center, Center of Excellence at the FDA? Yeah, absolutely. So this is 
brand new in a way. It was started in uh, on September 22nd. So the first informational session, um, basically reaching out to the entire community was a call actually last Monday, almost a thousand people on the call. And this is a gigantic, I would call it evolution as a total digital health program. What you just outlined for the, for the Cures Act is effectively that medicine is truly now digitized. I think, you know, back in the 80s with the first electronic medical records, that was the big promise. And now we have, high, uh, you know, digital data highways and, you know, portable data interconnection. And if you think about some of the stuff that, that healthcare providers are facing, right, Fitbit derived, you know, heart rate variability scores, plots of, you know, integrated Google health records and you know, it's an, it's an unforeseen la layer of complexity. It's in addition to all the stuff, all the digital innovation that a physician faces, let's say, in a, in a modern healthcare setting. Plus, on top of that is the, you know, plethora of, let's call it health-associated information. For example, you know, your, your, your social media-derived information and or payer or, you know, insurance-derived information and all of that is now effectively available. So tons of companies are emerging. This is a multi-billion dollar market. And within that, I don't know, ocean of it, full of different ships, one of those ships is digital pathology. And this digital health center of excellence is, is supposed to empower some of the stakeholders to really, really think about high quality digital health innovation by you know, connecting, innovating, and sharing some of those of those partnerships. So the this connection and sharing and innovating is obviously, I think, just an emerging topic. There are already several subsections of the center that were outlined last Monday, as I, as I mentioned. And for example, some of the topics are medical device interoperability. What are criteria for that? What is actual digital health content? I mean, it sounds somewhat strange because everything that I outlined sounds like the content, but which part has to undergo, for example, certain, let's just call it regulations on our behalf, right? It's not as if the FDA puts out regulations just for the fun of it. It, it should become safer and that you, when you get, for example, information from a Fitbit, is this clinical grade? Can your provider actually use this or was this just an app that some, you know, some people put together not with the intent to really provide medical information, but then it was used as such. So there's there's this whole slew of, let's say, this network of, of digital health experts that they're trying to build. Now, I can, I can plug the next informational session, which is on November 12th, and you can register freely, and it's definitely worth connecting. Now, there are a lot of components that are uncertain. So I think the this Digital Health Center of Excellence is, is situated in the Center for Imaging and Devices and Radiological Health, so the review part of the FDA. But I'm not directly sure about the structure and how that will work. But one thing that has already been clear is that the whole section of software as a medical device, SAMD, will live under that, and very likely also something called the pre-certification program. So definitely a, a super interesting program but keep in mind, this is not only for digital pathology. This is the whole slew of digital health. Right. Digital health in general, which is a very broad 
area, very broad topic. So we can we certainly put a, a link to that uh, to that session in in the show notes and on our website here at Digital Pathology Today. So I think we've talked about kind of a lot of the exciting aspects of regulation and you know spurring innovation and so forth. But I think we'd be remiss before we wrap up if we didn't look at maybe what many consider the dark side or the less exciting parts, like just, you know, how do we keep <laughs> patient data private? How do we comply with HIPAA? Yeah, I think which is certainly going to be a new challenge since, as we mentioned, you know, what used to be analog or was not considered data is now all of a sudden data. So what are some privacy concerns uh, with digital pathology and how, how, and what are some of the best practices you know, to keep this data safe and how, how do we best comply with regulatory burdens, so to speak, such as HIPAA? That's a very interesting thing. It's, it's, it's fun that you mentioned that that's the dark side, right? <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't have to make any, any Darth Vader breathing sounds now. But, you know, I, I've, I fully understand what that means because data protection and, and regulation related to that is, is such a huge topic and and i think it's it's very important especially when thinking about releasing patient data basically by legal mandate and and what to do when at the same time responsible for protecting it so I, before i get into some of those regulations a very simple thing is you know a woman with breast cancer calls me and said can i get my results yeah where should i send that to you know and it was I mean, I'm, I'm making the name up, but something along the lines of banana76 at gmail.com, right? So <laughs> it was her private email. I fully trusted her from, you know, the conversation on the phone. But now here I am legally mandated to share, give the patient access to that. You know, we have a send secure email where I can do all kinds of encryption. We have a patient gateway, totally clear. But that kind of illustrates at a very simple level, you know, it is the patient's right to get that, but at the same time, also the patients and my responsibility to, to make the data exchange secure. So there's um, obviously in the, in the United States, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and that's from 96. So also, you know, a few years <laughs> on that piece of law and HIPAA referred to, and HIPAA is, is regulating all kinds of things, health plans, you know, healthcare clearing houses, healthcare providers, but it's it's largely in a way focused on the organizations, right? Like if, if we have a data breach, it is not gonna be, you know, I mean, a patient may complain, but it's ultimately the organization. Does MGH, does Harvard, you know, whoever is owning the data, do they have appropriate means to protect data? And it is focused on the organization. When you look at, you know, other, other territories, for example, the European Union, there's a, the general data protection regulation plan that was from 2018, so obviously, you know, over a decade, you know, younger, um, is, is totally different. The whole conceptual framework works different. So GDPR is a huge thing for digital pathology. And I want to I wanna mention briefly just sort of the fundamental difference. So GDPR focuses on protecting the EU citizens' personal information, not personal health information. It protects every single citizen's personal information, whatever that's considered. And there's a whole guidance framework on that. But if you just compare that, like GDPR regulates protecting the information, while HIPAA protects in a way or focuses on the organizations doing that. It's like a different thought framework. Now the GDPR is mostly looking for the operational accountability, like who does what and where. 
And just to throw out sort of two details to, to keep that in mind is there's a data controller who's you know responsible and accountable for it, and there's a data processor who deals with the data, who manages it. And this, this kind of framework now has a very practical component to it. So let's assume you're running a trial, and it may be a multi-center trial. Many of the precision medicine, medicine um, drugs or diseases that we're looking at right now require multi-center, even international trials to be successful because we carve out smaller and smaller subsections of patients. Now that raises one very simplistic, in parentheses to get back to what you said, Joe, dark side, which is how do we exchange data across borders? And I don't mean, you know, Massachusetts and New Hampshire. <laughs> I mean, how do we do this internationally when you have to comply with GDPR where HIPAA is just not good enough? So this raises obviously the huge question of what is happening in our files, what is hidden in the metadata, and is that, can you just turn on a switch and become GDPR compliant? And that is something that I believe is a, of Im enormous interest for the digital pathology vendors, for the pharmaceutical companies working with us on the trials, not necessarily right now, but in the future, what is in the files that we're sharing? So yes, that's the dark side, and it definitely will require input, right? And we should get involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. You've given us so much to think about. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Lenners. Now, before we wrap up, mm -hmm. uh, just tell us what excites you about this burgeoning field in regulatory sciences, and where do you see us going in digital pathology? Wow, very good question. So I think the, the I mean, you know, some people just say, like, how can how can regulation be a science, right? So... I think it, it encompasses such a, a vast range of, of subjects and, and multiple disciplines like biostatistics, some of the classical, let's just call it clinical research disciplines, right? Like counting, quantitative histology, fish, molecular testing, but then also things that are a little bit outside the traditional pathology realm. For example, how do we communicate risks, right? How do we communicate the benefit of digital pathology to society? How are we economically sustainable? Like, how do we accomplish financial sustainability to, to unlock all of this? So I find it extremely fascinating that to apply, in a way, scientific methods as truly derived from facts, from data, everything is available digital, but then this data should drive regulation. And I believe that has to come, as I stated earlier, from people in the field with their feet on the ground, with proper and, and very validated scientific methods. And there are some programs in the FDA that enable that. This is pre-competitive space. It sounds very theoretical, but if you think you have a, a very specific scientific method to assess something and provide that to the FDA, they will take it, review it, and then use it for their own regulatory decision-making. That pathway, for example, is called MDDT, Medical Development Device Toolkit. and not 100% sure whether I got that right, but MDDT is the pathway. And with that, you can do help the regulator assess new technologies probably in a more efficient way and thereby, you know, short circuit some of these delays and hurdles, etc. So I find that is a very, in a way, new approach to unlock some of the potential of really cutting edge technologies that, that have to be more safe than ever because some of it, we, some of the technologies we use 
barely one human can fully understand. You know, some of the output of some of the modern biomedical devices is so complicated, it's, it's almost inaccessible and you need computational tools to make sense of it. But I find that extremely fascinating. Yes, it is very fascinating. Well, our guest has been Dr. Joe Linners from Mass General Hospital and the Digital Pathology Alliance. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.